0: Let's uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word today. Our Father, we thank you for the Bible. Uh, We thank you that you teach us about Jesus through it. We ask that you would open our hearts to receive uh, your Word, to believe and trust in Jesus as a result. You change our lives and the world uh, through the preaching of the Word and you would help us, uh, Lord, to teach others the same. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going through a series through the book of... Daniel. So Daniel is an Old Testament prophet. Uh, you'll find Daniel at sort of the end of the major prophets. He's sort of the the major of the minor prophets, uh, they like to say. And uh, Daniel is at a very interesting time in history. This is 600 BC roughly when this is happening. Uh, and Daniel is one of a few uh, men who have been chosen to be part of a talent quest in the land of Babylon. They are the Babylonians are looking for the best and brightest from Jerusalem, which of course they had just uh, conquered. They'd taken the best and brightest out of Jerusalem and now they're training them to serve in the king's court. We must remember that the reason that Babylon had come to destroy Jerusalem was God was allowing it. God was allowing his judgment to come even upon his own people. And the great irony of this Is that the reason that God's judgment was coming on his people is because they were worshipping other gods in their own land of Jerusalem and Israel? And so, what did God do? He took their best, allowed their best and brightest to be taken to another land where all they did was worship other gods. And it was in that very place that he would teach them to worship the one true God. And as we're going through this series, we're also reflecting that the time of Daniel is quite similar to our own time. We're seeing that for Christian and religious people in the secular West, we're in a time when there's many different ways that people think you can get to God. There's not just one God and his law, which is sort of observed by the general populace in the West and in Australia in particular. No, there's many different paths people think to spirituality, to connect with God, to find your true and inner self, to find satisfaction or happiness in life. And basically anything goes as long as it doesn't harm or oppress other people. And particularly in our day and culture, we are moving towards an anti-Christian sentiment because Christianity is old and oppressive and freedom for expression of self and expression of trying to discover our inner happiness is what's on the table for us now. And it was very similar in Daniel's age too because... There were many different gods that people could worship at the altar, for, and that is the time in which we find Daniel and his friends, and we find Daniel in a very interesting scenario because he is being tested to see whether he will be faithful to his God. We learnt last week, through looking at the first part of Daniel chapter one, that they were renamed. Daniel and his friends were given Babylonian names, which reflected the Babylonian gods. We see that they were educated. They were put before the best and brightest to be educated, to become essentially Babylonian. The Babylonians wanted to be seen as the highest and the most influential, the biggest and most powerful superpower in the world, a bit like our secular West today. And so Daniel was under an enormous amount of pressure to become Babylonian. And yet what do we see? Is he going to become Babylonian? Will he endure the test? Will he be faithful under fire? Well, I want to share with you three things uh, that jump out of the text for us. The first is uh, Daniel's courage to be faithful and the lesson of, become, of being courageous in order to be faithful. The second thing we're going to look at today is the provision of a faithful God. What does God do for us when we're under enormous pressure from the prevailing culture to become like it? What will God do for us in the midst of that time to make us stable and content with him as the one true God. And finally, we will look at the power of a faithful God. What will God do to his people in the midst of this type of pressure, in the midst of this fire? What will he do for his people to change them and to make them better, to make them more faithful, to make them more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And so uh, we begin by looking at the courage to be faithful. Now I've mentioned this before, but uh, I've, I've got to bring it up again because it's such an astounding uh, example of Christian faithfulness in the church in um, Baghdad, in, in Iraq. Uh, you know, it's a Muslim majority country. Uh, there's a guy. Uh, his name is uh, his name is Andrew. They call him the the Vicar of the Vicar of Baghdad, and uh, he has been pastoring the church uh, in Baghdad for a number of years, and then. One, uh, one year they had, and pretty much anyone who becomes a Christian is a convert from Islam in uh, Baghdad. And so uh, he had one year he had 13 uh, Christian converts from Islam uh, to uh, Christianity. And they were in this baptism class. And he was warning them uh, during the baptism class that if you stand out... If you stand up and say, I'm a Christian, and go through the waters of baptism, your life will be on the line. Because everybody knows that when Christians get baptised, they're standing up publicly and renouncing a previous faith and saying, now they're Christians. And what would happen quite often is uh, that would offend the culture and offend the families of these people. And so the families of these people, to uphold the honour within their family, would have a blood debt to actually go and kill that family member potentially, who had converted to Christianity from Islam. And so uh, the vicar of Baghdad went through this baptism course and warned them, are you sure you want to become Christians? Your life will be on the line. And they all stood up and said, yes, we do. We know the risk. We know the cost. We believe in Jesus. He is the one true God. There is no other. And so they went forward and, and were baptized. And the next week, one of the 13 returned. 12 had been killed by their families. That is an example of the courage to be faithful when your life is on the line. Now we see a similar thing in the book of Daniel. Daniel, of course, isn't he doesn't have his head on the chopping block immediately, but he is in absolute danger. Why? Because he, straight away it says in verse 8, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He resolved that he would not do it. Why is, why is this important? Why is Daniel saying that he won't eat the Babylonian food in the particular way that they, that they do? He, in fact, would only restrict himself to vegetables and water, essentially, and not eat all the finest of Babylon. Now, the reason for this is, of course, that the Jewish people had very strict food laws. That distinguished them from all the other nations in the world. And God was very clear and explicit that if you are to be my people, this is how you ought to live in the law. And so Daniel, though he's in a different land, though he's under a different king, suppose that he's still saying, I will worship God through the way that I live, even if my life is under threat as a result. And it goes a bit further than that. Uh, scholars, tell us that the food that would have been given uh, to these young men who were in this training program uh, to be part of the king's court would have likely first have been uh, sacrificed to the Babylonian gods and then sent to the king. So if they were to eat this food, it would have been an indirect way of worshipping the Babylonian gods. They realised that if they did this, they were compromising themselves. And it would have come at great personal cost. Now, just... As a first point of application, Christian people today have to make distinctions that come at personal cost in order to remain holy as God's people. This is a normal and ordinary thing. If you're a Christian person and you believe in Jesus, there are things that you are going to have to say no to that our culture says yes to. And it's going to happen all the time. There should be an expectation that you will live differently. If you're here or listening to this and you're considering Christianity, let me tell you up front, yes, it will cost you. Let me tell you up front, you will stand out and look different because there are all sorts of things as Christians that you will have to say no to. Of course, there's things that you say yes to as well, but we must be honest and say there is a cost and there is a personal cost. Uh, One of the, the... Uh, books in the New Testament, which is we're actually going to go through later this year, the book of 1 Peter, explains how this dynamic works. This is 1 Peter chapter 3 from verse 14. Let me read. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, than if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So the situation Christians are often in is saying no to things, and saying yes to other things. We have... We're under a different law than uh, the culture. We're under God's law. Though we do submit to our authorities in our culture, we're also first under God's rules. And so when it comes to the sphere of relationships, Christians are to behave in a particular way. We're not to be domineering over others in our relationships. We're to serve one another. Christians are not to engage in intimate relationships with those outside the faith. We're to stick within the faith if, if, like, if we're aware of that. There are all sorts of distinctions that Christians are to make. And it is to be known that you will be slandered for that. That you will be looked down upon. That you will be ostracized. That people will think that you're weird. And that is part of being a Christian in a culture that is not distinctly Christian. And of course, 1 Peter wasn't written in Daniel's time. It was written almost 700 years later. And yet, what was happening, Christians were still in a place where they were under a culture which disagreed with Christianity. And so when we consider these things, we consider being courageous under fire, we actually see a culture and time in the Bible which is actually very very similar to our own time and culture now. And so personal holiness... Is utterly important to God, but it will come at a great cost. I've been reading through um, some writings by a guy called Robert Murray M'Cheyne, and one of the he's known for basically saying two particular things, and these are the things that he's known for saying. Firstly, he's a pastor, and he uh, from the I think the 18th century, and one of the things that he is well known for saying is this: "The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness." So the pastor. He's saying the greatest need that his people had, that he was leading and teaching, was his own personal holiness, because he knew that what was in here would affect what was out there. What was in his inner life would affect his public life, and the same is true for you and I. The second thing that he was well known for was his prayer, and his prayer went a bit like this, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be made. Let me repeat that. His prayer went like this, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner sinner can be made. He recognized that the distinction or the holiness of being a Christian and the way that he upheld and was obedient to God's law was so, so important that it would affect his, that his inner life would totally affect his outer life. And yet he realized it was totally at the mercy of God to be able to do that. And so he had to pray, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be made, recognizing that he is a sinner fallen short of the glory of God, and yet he is a pardoned man by the grace of God. So what are, we, what are we learning here? The book of Daniel teaches us that it takes courage to be faithful under fire. Uh, when a scholar who uh, writes, writes a commentary on the book of Daniel, his name is Stephen Miller, uh, observes that there are several different ways that this true courage is revealed. And I've put down six signs of true courage so that you might know whether you are living the way you ought to be as a Christian under a secular culture. Let me list them. The first sign of true courage is a willingness to offend the authorities at the threat of personal loss. A willingness to offend the authorities at the, at the threat of... Personal loss. I want you to notice in our text today that Daniel would rather risk offending the king, offending the king and not eating his food and not doing stuff exactly the way it was prescribed, and have that personal loss rather than be unfaithful to God. So he was he was willing to do that. That's the first. The second is this: he was willing to stand up under peer pressure. Notice that Daniel was part of a training program where there would have been lots of people part of the training program. They would have known that Babylon was the greatest superpower in the world at that particular time. They would have known that the king had a temper and was willing to put people to death if he wanted to. If it was his whim to put them to death, he would. If they disobeyed him. Even the eunuch said here that he was worried about his own life. And yet Daniel here has courage to stand up under peer pressure. Even those around him would have been like, don't rock the boat. We don't want to get in trouble. But no, Daniel was willing to stand up under peer pressure. Thirdly, a sign of true courage is being unafraid to jeopardise future advancement. So even if Daniel managed to, by you know, ignoring the command to eat the king's food and, and was just going to have vegetables himself uh, with his friends... Even if they managed to survive that, you can imagine that would put a cloud over his future within that kingdom. He may not get a future advancement. He may not get a promotion amongst his peers. And so he would, to be courageous, he would have to be unafraid to jeopardize future advancement for the sake of God. Fourthly, Daniel would have to say no to attractive but sinful options. Do you notice that the food that was offered Uh, on the table, and the wine that was offered was the best in the kingdom. It was the king's food and wine, not just anyone's. And so the options on the table were highly attractive, but sinful for Daniel. And so it took courage to say no to attractive, but sinful options. Fifthly, Daniel had to say no to the temptation of secrecy. Can you imagine Daniel and his just a few friends? It seems that there's just four of them in this training program. Not many people would have known that they were there. Not many people would have known what they were up to. And so he could have thought, well, I'm really far away from Jerusalem. I can get away with it. I can get away with it. No one will really know. Just We can keep a secret. We'll eat the king's food and defile our, ourselves. We'll act as if we're worshipping the Babylonian gods, but in our heart we won't be. When we're willing to compromise because no one will really know. But Daniel knew that God knew. So he didn't. Sixthly, what is the sixth sign of true courage in the text? Saying no to self-justification. I think this is probably one of the most important here. Daniel could have argued that God had put him in this situation. And so he had no choice. He even had the right to follow the king's command here. He could have been bitter against God that God had allowed him to be taken into captivity in Babylon. He didn't want to be there. It wasn't his choice to be there. God had allowed this to happen. And so he could have said, well, I deserve to be comfortable. And yet he didn't. He said no to self-justification. And so I wonder... This morning, where do you feel the pressure in our secular culture? Where do you feel the fire in our secular culture today? You're either swimming with the tide or you're swimming against it. And Daniel and his friends were swimming against the tide. But as you can see, there is an enormous amount of power in that tide. Of course, the courage to be faithful doesn't just come on its own, it comes because Daniel wasn't just looking at the authority of Nebuchadnezzar being the king of kings, you know, the emperor of the Babylonian Empire. No, Daniel was worshipping another king, God was his king. You know, though Daniel's God is invisible. Though Daniel was without a place of worship, though Daniel was under a foreign power, though Daniel was at the threat of death, Daniel's God was more real to him, being invisible than the visible power of the Babylonians and their so-called gods. Though under God's sovereign power, Daniel was in captivity, Daniel felt the freedom to worship his God alone. Because his God ruled the heavens and the earth. And so the courage to be faithful comes because you submit to a higher power. That was what was in Daniel's heart. And that higher power, Daniel's God, Yahweh, was more real to him. So he was utterly obedient to his God within the situation that he was in, willing to stand up and have courage. In many aspects of his life, even at the threat of death, in order to be faithful to his God. So seeing that there, it does require great courage to be faithful, it requires us to look firstly to the higher power, the king above all kings, if you are to be faithful under this pressure in our secular age and certainly in Daniel's pluralistic age. But secondly, we need to see that there is a provision from a faithful God for those who are under this pressure. Another scholar, Stephen Miller, writes this He says, Here obedience to Scripture's divine commands may be observed. This is one reason God blessed Daniel with such great insight. He acted upon the spiritual light that he had, and God honored his faithfulness by imparting more. Notice that Daniel and his friends, after they were tested, and it all came through, by the way. What were they found to be 10 times better than anyone else in that training program? 10 times better. It seemed that God is blessing their obedience to His word, even in the secular culture. And so, what does God provide then? Provides favor in the midst of the time when we are obedient to Him. Favor. Let's have a look at it. It's, it's pretty obvious. We see it in verse 9 and verse 17. Verse 9 says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel was looked upon favorably because what he had resolved in his heart not to defile himself. He had resolved in his heart to be faithful, so God gave him favor. We see the same thing in verse 17. It says, As for these four youths, as in Daniel and his three friends, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God gave it to them. God made them abundantly better than everybody else. It seems that when we are faithful to God, he will bless us. question for us this morning is, when we have been blessed by God, do we use it for his sake? We learn a bit, bit later that actually Daniel served in the royal court. He, had a, he was, um, went through this training program and actually served in a particular role within the royal court and had a role in, as a spiritual advisor to the king. And of course, his friends would have worked uh, in the same space. They remained distinctly uh, worshippers of their one God And yet they remained, and they continued to serve there. And yet when the opportunity arose that he would stand out again as being a worshipper of Yahweh, the God of Israel, he used his skills and abilities for God's sake. And so the question for us, because we all have unique gifts and abilities in life, who are we using them for? Are we using them for ourselves or for God? Do we recognize that everything that we have is a gift from Him and so that our time, our talent, our finances are to be stewarded, looked after for God's sake? Do we recognize that? Do we recognize that when we have particular skill, particular talent, even particular spiritual gifts, that there is an obligation that we would use them for the one who gave them to us? It would be for His sake and when the opportunity arises, we would stand up And stand out for him, even if it comes at great costs. So God seems to provide greatly for his people who are under pressure. There's a couple of problems with this and I I think that some of you might have been thinking them already. The first is, what happens when God doesn't get us out of trouble? Like Daniel. What happens? You know, when, let's say you're Going for a promotion at work. You're trying to get ahead. And yet there's a diversity and inclusion policy in your workplace. And you know, and, and it's being put out in your workplace uh, for feedback from the staff, and you give feedback as a someone who wants to be a faithful Christian, and your employer knows that you're the only person who stood up and made some you know, concerns about this diversity and inclusion. Uh, policy within the workplace and you know that you have a better resume compared to the next person and yet you're overlooked for a job. Do you think that you'll give that feedback next time? Do you? What will happen? This is very, this is very real. In almost every sphere and workplace you will find that there are policies and procedures in place which do crowd out Christian ethics and behaviour And so, what will you do when you are overlooked for positions when, unlike Daniel's situation, it doesn't work out for you? Does that mean that God is not faithful to his word? I want to point you to something extremely helpful for us in this case. I mentioned this uh, when we finished the book of Daniel, when I was teaching, uh, sorry, when I finished the book of Matthew, when I was teaching about Jesus' time. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was perfectly faithful to God in every way, bar none. The Bible is emphatic about that. Jesus faithfully served God and was utterly obedient to every command of God. And ordinarily, when you are obedient to God's commands, He blesses you. That's, that's the general rule and principle in the book of Proverbs. You serve and honor God, you fear him, he will endow you with wisdom and prosper your life. That's the general rule of how things ought to work. And yet in Jesus' case, it didn't. Because Jesus is the one person in all of history who perfectly in every way for all of his life served God to the letter and the spirit, was totally obedient, and yet his Life ended in suffering. He did not get a blessing, but he got the curse. Did he not? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was sweating almost drops of blood, he even asked that the curse, would be, the cup, would be taken away from him, that he would not have to do it, but he submitted to the will of the Father, being obedient, even in that moment when he saw that sin was going to be put on him in its entirety. And so there is someone who, unlike you and I, lived an utterly perfect life and yet took a curse as a result. He was the one person in all of history that, to be utterly faithful to God, he would have to bear the entire curse for sin. And so what we find is that Jesus' example utterly helps us. Because Oftentimes, and it might be more and more so now, when you are faithful to God, it will cost you more and more. You may not be wealthy if you are faithful to God. You may not be in a prominent position of power if you are faithful to God. You may not be well looked upon by others if you are faithful to God. Look at the life of Jesus. The wealthiest person that's ever lived is Jesus. The person with the highest moral standard and actually was not a hypocrite is Jesus. The person who loved others utterly was Jesus. The person who taught perfectly was Jesus. And what did he get in return? And so when, I want you to get this really, because this is something that Christians find utterly troubling. When you are seeking to be faithful to God and life is not working out as you think it should be, you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus, your Saviour. And as we read earlier in the book of 1 Peter, it will be utterly good because what it will do is open up evangelistic conversations that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And secondly, God will glorify you on the day of judgment because who are you living for? Not this world, but for him. The second problem is this is that utter obedience can actually lead us away from God, like the Pharisees. You know, the people who were most like Daniel, and were seeking to be most like Daniel uh, when it comes to the New Testament, were a group of religious fanatics called the Pharisees. They were highly observant of the law. They tried to keep it to the letter. In fact, they wanted to keep the law so much that they created other rules around the law that they thought that if they obeyed those rules too, then they definitely uphold the law. And of course, they found themselves tying themselves in circles and circles, and eventually it came undone, and they ended up breaking God's law as a result. But they, their goal was to be utterly obedient. The problem was that their pursuit of holiness led to pride, because they thought That if we are good enough, God will have to accept us. God will owe me. So there's this other spectrum. That if you think that if you become more and more religious and God will definitely have to give you the things that you want, the more that you give him, the more that you'll get out of it. You know, the, the the more of your life that you devote to religious observance, that God will owe you other material things as a result, you'll be sorely disappointed, but you will also be filled with pride. Because you will feel like God owes you. Jesus absolutely challenged this view. Jesus taught that Christians are to so inhabit the culture that they don't avoid. You know, unrighteous, unclean people like the Pharisees did, but they, go, they are in amongst and loving and serving the world around them and yet utterly distinct and living for the glory of God and so not conforming to the culture around them. So Jesus puts us in this utterly difficult position, I've got to say, On the one hand, we're not to get overly religious and then filled up with pride so that God owes us something. But on the other hand, Christians are supposed to be in the culture, inhabit it, love and serve the people, but not become like them and yet serve them and love them. But first serve your God and his law within the culture. How do you do both? How do you be like Jesus? In today's day and age, it is a bit of a conundrum. And yet, Jesus uh, puts it this way. Or well, so, grace puts it this way. You know, because pride opposes God because it says, You owe me for my holiness. Whereas humility would say, God, I owe you for my unrighteousness. If you're a, if you're a proud person, if you're a proud religious person, you will think that God owes you. If you're a humble person, you'll realize that actually, well, you owe God. And you have a great debt to pay to Him. But the grace of God in Jesus Christ says this, I will pay what you owe. That's what Jesus said. And so we have a debt now to Him out of love. So we've seen, firstly, that it does require great courage to be faithful. Secondly, we've seen that God does provide for his people in the midst of difficulty and pressure, sometimes with great gifts of wisdom, understanding, spiritual gifts, and sometimes he doesn't. And yet because of Christ, we can be more like him even when we don't get those things. We can follow in his footsteps even when we don't get those things. And yet it is very difficult Very difficult to walk the path of being holy and distinct and being a bit like Daniel and yet in amongst the people and loving and serving them and not prideful and religious at the same time. So how do we do both? We need the power of a faithful God. For those of you who know me a little bit, you know I'm a bit of a sci-fi nerd. Apologies to those who aren't. Uh, if you've read the book, Ender's Game, or seen the movie, you will know that it's about this cosmic battle uh, between humanity and uh, this race called the Formics, the Formics, and they are sort of an alien enemy, set in the future. And basically, there's, there's this, uh, the, the government is looking for new talent to defeat this evil alien race, and so they sort of hunt out gifted youths, a bit like Daniel, hunt down gifted youths to become commanders at their battle school. Uh, The lead character's name is Andrew Ender Wiggin, or they call him Ender. And his skills, of course, are so good that he surpasses all of his peers and rises to serve as a key commander in the battle school against these evil enemy, the Formics. Uh, One of the key virtues that Ender displays is courage. Courage to do what is best. Courage to rise in the face of adversity. Although uh, at some point uh, early in uh, the story, he actually falls out of favour with, with the battle school and is overlooked because his siblings seem to be so successful, he is overlooked as the younger brother. He's bullied by other children in school and so one day he decides to take out the bully. And with this surge of anger and violence, Ender beats up the bully, reacts very strongly and permanently incapacitates him. Now, the colonel of the battle school, who's been sort of watching these children on a camera, sees what happens and goes to visit Ender. Now, Ender justifies his position because he says that if he demonstrates superiority over the enemies now, then he will prevent future problems from the bully. Let me say that again. that If he demonstrates his superiority now over the bully, he'll prevent future problems from that bully, i.e. the bully won't be able to bully anyone else in the future. So he puts an end to him now. And the colonel says, this is the sort of person that I want. And so he is taken into the battle school and then rises up because he has the necessary foresight to deal with the evil enemy, the formics. Now, in the battle with the enemy... Uh, these children are being trained, these gifted youths are being trained in order that they would be able to take command of the human fleet and defeat the enemies. And there's a simu- they're constantly doing simulations to uh, get top marks in their class. And during one simulation, Ender decides to sacrifice the entire human fleet in order to totally destroy his enemy and he's doing it a bit out of spite because he doesn't like his superiors within the battle school. But to his horror, he realizes that the superiors are cheering because it was not a simulation. The enemies are destroyed at the cost of the entire human fleet. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because rather than Earth's brightest, coming to destroy the enemies of humanity by becoming cruel and without compassion? Because there is evil in this world and in this universe, and one way to eradicate it is by destroying all of humanity. Typically, the superhero movies or the James Bond movies will have a villain who will want to wipe the slate clean of all the evil of humanity, and someone has to rise up and defeat them. But rather than that happening... Heaven's brightest, Christ Himself, would come down to us. And He would rather receive the entire weight of evil and its just penalty, which is death, upon Himself than dish out the justice that we deserve. So it is in the gospel that we see the faithfulness of God, that at the cost of His very own Son, He would hand Him over to justice. Jesus on the cross so that we would not have to pay that penalty. Jesus is the ultimate gifted one with all the compassion, with all the wisdom, with all the understanding, with all the spiritual gifts. And yet rather than serving himself, he would serve humanity on the cross and save us if we're willing to accept him from our sins eternally. So when we consider Daniel, we consider Daniel did a good job, but Jesus did a great work of eternal justice and mercy. Jesus did what Daniel could never do. If you are thinking to yourself, I need to be a bit more like Daniel, you might be right, but you'll never do it. You'll never be as good as you could possibly be because you'll always stumble and fail. And so you won't just need an example, you'll need a saviour. You need someone who's willing to step into your place and live the perfect life you should have lived and die the death you should have died in order that when you trust in Him, when you trust in Jesus, you have the confidence that it wasn't you that earned it, it was Him. So you can be a humble person and then serve Him out of a debt of love because he first served you. Now, I want to finish quickly with six applications from our text for how to be a courageous and faithful person in our day and age. Six. Number one. Daniel gives us a great example that we might have a courageous work attitude. A courageous work attitude. You see, Daniel was a very odd combination in his work attitude. He was faithful to his employer, on the one hand, and he was faithful to God. He was doing both. He was endearing to do both. What an example for us. Even more, Jesus' faithfulness gives us an attitude of servant-heartedness in our work, maybe in our education, maybe in the different areas of life that we serve him, in the home, in the family, in our other spheres but to do it in a distinctly Christian way, by being obedient to God's law, even when it costs us. So we're to have a courageous work attitude. Secondly, we are able to take on courageous risk-taking. I want you to see in the text that Daniel was able to risk his position, even his own life, in order to honour God. And this is evident a bit later, when Daniel is willing to step up to save his co-workers another time. And it seems he keeps doing it again and again. Let me ask you, what courageous risks might God be asking you to take? Because if you're a Christian person and you really trust in God, then failing when you take a courageous risk is not such a big deal. It's okay to fail because you trust yourselves into God's hand. Think about this. Christ risked it all and gave it all for us so that we might have everything secured for eternity. And so if we will never risk our place with God, if we have faith in him, then we can have the courage to step out in faith. This might be in business. This might be in relationships. If there is a godly risk that God might be calling you to take with courage, we have limited excuses when we trust in a sovereign God. Thirdly, We can have perseverance when we have little favor, little learning, little skill, and little spiritual gifts, unlike Daniel. You see, Daniel was greatly blessed by God, wasn't he? He had enormous opportunity and the ability to achieve great things within himself that he was gifted by God. And I want you to know that Jesus had infinitely more of all of those things. And yet Jesus' greatest work was through suffering and death and resurrection. And so what does that mean for you and I? That means even if you've got nothing, you feel like you've got little to offer God. Little favor, little learning, little skill, little spiritual gift to offer to God. He can use you mightily. Because really, it's all about Him anyway. Fourthly, our failures to show courage in faithfulness teach us the grace of God. When we fail to serve God as we should, when we compromise, when we backslide, when we spend entire seasons of our lives rooted in pride or bitterness or lust or distractions of wealth and power, Christ died for your sins. In fact, The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that the more you are aware that Christ died for your sins, the more you will let go of those things and live for him. The more you are aware that Christ died for your sins, the more you will let go of other things and live for him. Fifthly, we can pursue friendships with people who totally disagree with us and we can work with, love and serve them. Interestingly, Daniel became friends with his boss. Daniel became friends with the middle management above him, who it seems worshipped totally different gods, and yet they seemed to get along really well. It seemed that a friendship had developed, though Daniel was being distinctly Christian and was opposed to the worship of their gods he got along with this person. Notice that Jesus expresses the same love for sinners. Some of Jesus' best friends were the undesirables, the tax collectors, prostitutes. Jesus opened his life to people and it was through the openness that he had with them and the friendships that he built with people that they often came to faith. And so Daniel teaches us that we can work, live with, and serve people who totally disagree with us and pursue friendships with them. Lastly, if God does give you great gifts and abilities, you have a great responsibility to honor God with them. I find it fascinating that Daniel and his three friends were 10 times better than the best of the best. 10 times better and so some of you will be exceptionally good at certain things. Not just average, exceptionally good. Maybe even 10 times better than others. Maybe more. When God has given you that much ability, talent or spiritual gift, you have more, even more weight in responsibility to serve God with it. We see parable and parable, teaching and teaching again and again in the Bible that says with this sort of gift, ability, talent comes great responsibility. Notice that Christ, again, had all the best of everything and gave himself entirely for us. And so the question left for you and I is, what will we give? If Christ has given that, what will we give to him? Let me close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us uh, about the life of Daniel, about we, how we ought to respond uh, to him. Uh, Lord, help us to now uh, live a life in response to the grace of Jesus. That we can't just be like Daniel uh, through his example, but we must respond, Lord Jesus, to you. And what you have done perfectly. As to bring that truth and that grace to bear in our lives today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.